Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. It's August 25th, 2016, and on this week's show, we take a deep dive into the BBC's new list of this century's greatest films, discuss the demise of Gawker, divulge your best low-budget DSLR camera options, and as always, bring news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. We're coming at you, as always, from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And I'm joined this week by the whole gang, John Fusco, Charles Hain, and Emily Booter. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Right. Well done. <laughs> we are here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. First of which is the fact that the BBC published their list of the 21st century's greatest films, or basically the best films of the past 16 years. Has it been 16 years already? Believe it or not. Wow. This was a follow-up to their list of the 100 greatest American films that they put out last year, and um, this one is basically the best that cinemas had to offer since 2000, all 16 years. 16. Yeah, it's just a couple years older than you, John. Um, As picked by 177 film critics from 36 countries, pretty impressive list of critics and very impressive list of films. Each of the critics picked their top 10 films, and then the submissions were assigned points based on how highly the critics ranked them. So 10 points for each number one pick and one point for each number 10 pick. You guys do the math. Um, I have to say, it's a pretty diverse and international list, and apropos for this show, it's very heavily indie-focused. I'm personally very ecstatic about this list. I think it's one of the best critical lists I've ever seen, and that's probably because it features a lot of my favorite films, many of which are under-the-radar gems that do not get enough attention in the public eye. For example, it's a dream come true for me to see Iranian filmmaker Ashgar Farhadi's 2011 film A Separation appear in the top 10. It's at number 9. It was actually the first Iranian film to win an Oscar for Best Foreign Film back in 2012. Beyond that critical recognition, far too few Americans have seen this movie. It follows an Iranian woman who wants to leave the country with her husband so that their daughter can have a better future. But when her husband refuses, the woman files for divorce and the family court rejects her application, so she can't leave. And her only remaining option is to live separately from her husband. The film unfolds like a thrilling play. It uncovers many moral quagmires that plague modern Iran and the human condition at large. It's really, really interesting, and perhaps the most interesting tidbit is that it was shot for $500,000. Yeah, we did a piece on the show after Abbas Kurastami died, and I think, you know, that was a reminder that the Iranian film scene in general is sort of under the radar, but I know that this filmmaker is one who was influenced by Kurastami's work. Absolutely. So BBC's pick for number 15 is another really underappreciated masterpiece. It's Christian Mungu's Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. The search for the abortion proves life-threatening and morally compromising, almost like a crazy dark labyrinth, which Mungu depicts in an unsentimental and often brutal manner. It's very hard to watch at times. But what's most astonishing here is the realism. The film has extremely naturalistic dialogue and cinematography, and it's like nothing I've ever seen before or since. This is another film that was shot on a meager budget for about $700,000. Moving further down the list, we've got a whopping three Michael Haneke films, The White Ribbon, Cachet, and Amour, 
which makes my dark and stormy heart glow with a semblance of joy. Wow. <laughs> you have a dark and stormy heart. We learn something new about your personal life, I think, every week. <laughs> I reveal myself very incrementally. I wish I had a dark and stormy to drink right now. That's about my personal life. Did you know that's a copywritten phrase? Gosling's Rums owns dark and stormy. Really? That seems unfair. Doesn't it? <laughs> you can't just co-opt the English language. It, the, Gosling's does make a very nice ginger beer, yeah. but like you're not allowed to make it with anything else. They'll That's sue. Crazy. That's crazy. Another really dark but incredible film on this list is Laszlo Nemes' incredible Holocaust narrative, Son of Saul, which came out last year. It's an immersive experience of Auschwitz that, of course, is horrifying and short of reading Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, it's the closest you can get to empathizing with the concentration camp experience in World War II. I'm really intrigued by that movie because there's been so, so many Holocaust-related films over the years, and even Oscar winners like Life is Beautiful, and you'd think in a way that, like, the genres played out. There's not, you know, necessarily more you can say. And then here's this film, as you said, that just came out recently that really kind of shook up the whole, you know, the global viewership. What's beautiful about this film is that it doesn't necessarily try to say anything new. It doesn't have an agenda. It really just wants to put you at the center of the experience. So you're following this one man the entire time as he goes through his daily life, cleaning up bodies, you know, doing horrific acts um, that he's forced to do as a part of this really elite group of uh, people in the concentration camp that are chosen to do the the dirtiest jobs. And um, it's it, it basically never cuts to wide, so you're on his face the entire time. And so you get the experience, like the 360-degree sound experience of what it was like to be in Auschwitz. And of course, it's chaotic and there's gunshots everywhere you never know when something's going to pop up from behind you it's it's horrifying and you will not forget it if you see it another filmmaker whose name i'm going to very much butcher is andre zivianstiv <laughs> he is a russian filmmaker i could not figure out how to pronounce his name as much as i tried to research it he has two films on this list the return and leviathan which are both really epic novelistic narratives about modern russia He's also famous for incredible cinematography, so everyone should see those films. And then, of course, we've got one of my personal favorite documentaries, a personal documentary called Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell. And then we've got Andrea Arnold's film Fish Tank, which I'm very happy made the list. And don't forget <laughs> the go-to answer to my least favorite question ever, which I get constantly, um, what's your favorite movie? Well, if you have to ask, it's number 77 on BBC's list, Julian Schnabel's The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, an incredible story about a fully functional brain trapped inside a paralyzed body, and it stretches the film medium to its most innovative limits, trying to express this person's inner experience. Yeah, those are all great films, and you know they're independent, and that's awesome, and I haven't seen a lot of them, which is cool, because that means now I'm going to go see them, but... One movie that I've seen that I think everyone has seen that isn't on the list that is kind of insane to me is uh, there's there's no Lord of the Rings movies on this entire 100 movie list, um, which is crazy because I, I think, you know, it's okay to like popular things and um, think about all the shitty franchises that have come out in like the past 16 years. Um, there's really only... One, I guess, barring Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, um, where every movie was consistently very good, and that's 
Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I think for me and for most millennials can really be considered as our generation Star Wars, um, in a sense. And if you look at the trilogy as a whole, the entire thing won a total of, I'm going to do some quick math here, 17 Oscars. The Fellowship won four Oscars. The Two Towers won two Oscars. <laughs> and The Return of the King won Elvin. <laughs> No, sorry. I meant to say 11. So, I mean, let's talk about Return of the King, which, you know, I think if any of the movies would be on the list. Um, It's number eight on IMDb's best movies of all time, right in between Pulp Fiction and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It holds the record for most Oscar wins for a single picture tied with Titanic and Ben-Hur. And not only does it hold that record, it holds the record for biggest sweep, meaning it won all of the Oscars it was nominated for, which in 2003 for Return of the King was 11. It won 11 out of 11 Oscars. It's got an 8.9 on IMDb, a 94 on Metacritic, and a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I don't know, it, it just upsets me that it's not on the list because I feel like, you know, we're not allowed to like things that are popular or or were big budget movies and of course this is one of the most expensive trilogies ever made but i don't think that it should discount the fact that you know it really was an incredible feat that peter jackson did adapting these crazy detailed books into movies um and i've written a lot about screenplays and screenwriting in the past i don't know two or three weeks and to take on something as monumental as tolkien's epic trilogy and put it onto film in such a a coherent way that really doesn't leave out too much of his original detail is just insane to me and i really wish it was on there um so i'm gonna stop ranting i have a question though do you think that the hobbit changed people's retroactive memory Total Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. I think that's another reason why it's unfair because the Hobbit, the, the three Hobbit movies, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say those are good. Those are really fucking terrible movies. And a clear example of exploitation for us from a studio that had a big hit with the trilogy and then just decided to expand, you know, the smallest book into three different movies simply for the sake of getting people to go out and spend money on them, even though they were terrible movies. I so. don't know if that's why I didn't make the list, though, although I agree with everything you yeah. said. it's it's. More, I think that critics, you know, somehow it's like not cool or not okay for critics to even consider the fantasy genre, which is a shame. And I'm so glad you brought it up, John, because I actually did my, you know, hashtag seven favorite films on Twitter last week, which was a popular thing that was going around, me and the celebs. Um, and I did put Lord of the Rings Return of the King on my list, and I was kind of afraid that I was going to get totally slammed, especially by listeners of Indie Film Weekly, with an emphasis on the indie film. But it, I think it's a great film, so well executed on so many levels. Um, that being said, I was happy to see a couple of my other picks on this list, on the BBC's list, um, one of them was in the top 10, Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And they also have my eternal filmmaking crush, Alfonso Cuaron, on the list. Um, although his film in my favorites list was E2 Mama Tambien, and the one on this list is Children of Men, which was a close second for me. 
Can I just say one more thing about Return of the King <laughs> and the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole? If, you, also, must. if I, you must. I just want to say that it also, we, you know, you take for granted what that film did for CGI and like Andy Serkis and the whole character of Gollum and all of the incredible creatures that Jackson put onto screen. And that basically revolutionized an entire industry and set the precedent for how many movies that came out in the past 16 years I don't know so just well, to say. while we're still on the topic or back to the topic of things missing from this list I would bring it around to of course y'all won't be surprised here I wish that there were more documentaries on the list I actually think Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing was the only one on the entire list besides stories we tell that Emily already mentioned also spoiler alert their number one film dun, 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 was Mulholland Drive I totally disagree I, I'm definitely in the camp of like WTF with that movie and this will be controversial but David Lynch in general not really a fan I think he's like one of those auteurs that sort of does artsy stuff for artsy stuff's sake and not necessarily in the name of good storytelling but what about his dream sequences we do have a great article or two or three on no film school about those dream sequences but still not my bag that being said, there were several BBC articles that came out around this list. One of them that was written sort of guessing why Mulholland Drive became the f first choice pointed out something that was really interesting to me. They basically said that the age of cinematic television may have had its roots in this film, in Mulholland Drive, which I never thought about before. It began as a failed TV pilot during the time when Lynch's Twin Peaks was on TV. Um it never went anywhere and then was salvaged into feature-length format. So we actually may owe that film quite a bit. That's really interesting, actually. I was really disappointed. Nothing from the Fast franchise made it in. Tokyo huh. Drift and Fast Five are easily as good as some of the movies on this list. Wait, are you and, serious? Yeah, I'm absolutely serious. There's some diehard fans of that, the later Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> yeah. Who knew that Indie Film Weekly would get so un-indie this week? Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift is in its own way very indie. They took an indie director, they gave him a crack at a studio movie, which is now the model with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and he was like, hey guys, what if we took this America-based franchise and we just took it to Japan with whole new characters and told completely new stories, and it's actually like a really phenomenal movie. So I highly recommend three and five in that series. All of them are great, but three and five are the best. Can you skip one? You can absolutely watch them in any order you like. They okay. do not build on each other at all. Characters die and randomly reappear. It's not a linear narrative. Cool. I know what I'm watching tonight. Charles, did you have any other thoughts on the list? Um, no, that was my big one. <laughs> that is a big Passionate. one. Passionate. Oh, and Shanghai Nights was also really... Shanghai Nights. <laughs> Shanghai Nights is in my top 10 for the 2010s. It's a really great classic Hollywood movie. Better than Shanghai Noon? Oh, yeah, way better than huh. Shanghai Noon. Shanghai Noon was a warm-up. What about Shanghai Morning? It never came out. <laughs> no, never came oh, out. Okay. Yeah, they, they set it up at the end of two, but nobody saw two but me. So I, I saw that two in theaters. I love that. Me and, me and my brother would watch those movies. I mean, Jackie Chan, cool guy. I like that we went to Asia here. There well, is, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is on the list, and that is a gorgeous, epic, stunning kung fu movie. Yeah. That's absolutely right. But just to bring it back to the indie perspective. Um, Thank you, Emily. You're welcome. <laughs> Full circle. Number 100, the last film on the list, but not the least, is Marin Odd's Tony Erdman, which just came out at Cannes this year. I saw it about four months ago. Um, it's hilarious. 
really, really, really funny, very weird. Um, it's going to come out this fall. I think Sony Pictures Classics is releasing it, and everybody should see it. Yeah, actually, Emily did a great interview with Maranata at Cannes about that film, and we've got tons of other posts on No Film School about the many of the films on this list, so we'll link to some of them in the post associated with this podcast. And moving from the BBC to another venerable journalism source, okay, I'm being a little sarcastic there, but... The bell tolled this Monday for Gawker.com. The site closed its doors after 14 years, and its family of widely read websites like Jezebel and Gizmodo are in a bid for purchase by Univision. And people have strong opinions, maybe we in this room have strong opinions about the site, and it's sometimes kind of snarky and aggressive tactics. But the fact of the matter is, for better or worse, they've been around almost as long as the internet and helped shape the voice of the web. What really concerns us as media makers is the way they went down. So if you don't know the story, tech billionaire Peter Thiel was bankrolling lawsuits against the company, famously one recently that awarded wrestler Hulk Hogan 140 million bucks after Gawker released a sex tape of Hogan sleeping with his friend's wife. Um, Thiel was doing all this specifically in an attempt to shut down the site after they outed him as gay almost a decade ago. And as far as I'm concerned, any time the mega wealthy can fund the demise of a media organization because they don't like what they have to say, we as filmmakers should be worried. Absolutely. The 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 1% should not control the media. That is just a fundamental democratic tenet. And coincidentally, I just finished reading a really interesting and famous text on journalistic ethics that many of you may have read. It's called The Journalist and the Murderer, written by Janet Malcolm. It's about a libel trial brought about by a, a convicted murderer, Jeffrey McDonald, against Joe McGinnis, an author who wrote a famous novel about his trial called Fatal Vision. The famous quote from the book that everybody likes to quote in journalis- journalistic ethics classes is, quote, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. Okay, so what does this have to do with Gawker? So a woman I went to high school with was actually just appointed four months ago, bad timing, um, deputy editor of the site. She recently penned a final essay called How Guilty Should I Feel, which heavily references the book when talking about the moral enterprise of journalism, which has to do with the downfall of Gawker. So I would like to read an excerpt from this, actually. Um, writing about her personal struggle to morally justify exposing the mistakes of others, she addresses the common idea that we can't possibly understand what's going on in someone else's life, therefore should not out them. So this is Kelly Stout. Empathy overreaches when what we can't know and what we can't judge wrap themselves around each other so tightly that they become indistinguishable. Perhaps all this makes me dis positionally unsuited to journalism, which doesn't so much valorize the exposition of wrongdoing as consider it as the job's central mission. Or maybe I'm a woman journalist who grew up in a world that has coached me to feel bad for the men whose misdeeds I point out. But what is journalism without the disclosure of that which other people would prefer to keep private? Answer, it's storytelling, that blank folksy word used by media companies, ad agencies, and yes, Facebook, to describe what they do when they want it, to sound like what they do is somehow for you and not for them. At its best, storytelling is heartwarming and entertaining, and at its worst, it obscures the fact that on occasion, people and entities do bad things. Storytelling killed Gawker.com. One of the jobs of indie filmmakers is to tell the stories and the truths that traditionally financed studio movies are not going to talk about. And so, like, I personally take a lot of inspiration from the lack of fear Gawker showed in investigating stories and 
telling the truth to the world. I don't always disagree with everything they revealed, but they had a passionate commitment to punching up. And I kind of think indie filmmakers should have a passionate commitment to punching up wherever possible. Yeah, I think it can be said that even if, you know, you think that you would rather not know some of the truths that were revealed by Gawker, they had a commitment to truth itself. And that was what they were striving towards. And they never they never published. They would always redact something if it was published falsely. Like they they didn't want to take someone down for the sake of taking them down. They wanted to get to the kernel of truth. And they had a lot of really good writers. So we look forward to seeing sort of where those folks end up and what's going to happen in the vacuum that Gawker leaves. Meanwhile, moving on to gear news. You write about anything interesting this week, Charles? There was a bunch of cool gear news this week. Uh, In the computer realm, NVIDIA is changing the way they do their video cards for laptops. This isn't really a surprise. The world is going mostly all laptop all the time. The only people I know who own desktops are either like, high-end professional effects artists or people who own iMacs. And if you don't know it, an iMac is really just a laptop computer with a stand. It's all laptop equipment. So NVIDIA is taking their desktop quality cards, the 1060s, the 1070s, the 1080s, and they're putting more or less the same power at a slightly slower clock speed into laptops. So it's no longer going to be the 1060M, which was back when they did M cards, a very limited card. They're doing the 1060 for mobile and it'll be a mobile form factor lower clock speed that you can stick into a laptop and you can overclock it so if you've got a laptop and you want to put some fans on it or cool it however else you want to cool it you can overclock it you can ramp up that heat and you can start doing really powerful stuff on laptops so i think we're going to see a, a lot more laptops on set with these cards and I think this is potentially one of the moments where we're going to start seeing a lot fewer MacBook Pros on set and I think we're a lot more likely next year to see Razer Blades and uh, Alienware systems on set doing DIT work. Why would this new machine be particularly useful on a set? So uh, most of the major systems out there for video processing are really GPU intensive, especially Blackmagic DaVinci Resolve. They've been great from the moment they came out of really taking advantage of all the GPU resources you give them. So if you're on a set and you're shooting a big file format, you're shooting on an Alexa, you're shooting on a RED, you're shooting Hey, even if you're shooting DSLR, but you don't want to edit the H.264s, having a really powerful laptop for not just ingesting that footage, but transcoding to DNHXD or ProRes or whatever your intermediate format's going to be, you're really going to speed up your workflows. No longer is it going to be, okay, we download on set, we take it to the post house to transcode. We're doing those transcodes on set. Maybe we're even editing on set, or if not, we're handing edit-ready media right to the editor, and it's speeding everything up. And as everybody knows, the time pressure from when you shoot to when you release is so much faster than it used to be that uh, trying to push that all through, you know, the four-year-old MacBook Pro model that's currently available just doesn't make any sense when you, for less money, you could get a much, much more powerful machine with a desktop class GPU in it so you can really crank through your footage. Some interesting developments from MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab this week. Um, They developed some real game-changing technology that will influence motion graphics. It's an incredibly involved concept, and I admittedly don't understand the full extent of it, but here is the gist. Um, Since the 60s, the best way to do CGI has been to simulate an object's motion in space using 3D modeling. 
But of course, 3D modeling is really expensive, super time consuming and very cumbersome. So the lab's new technology, which is called Interactive Dynamic Video, or IDV, essentially supersedes that process by analyzing objects' vibrations in space and predicting how the object will move in new situations so that you don't have to 3D model it. This could make the CGI process so much more affordable, and it could also entirely change the virtual reality and augmented reality game. More on this in the article accompanying the podcast post. It's very interesting stuff. So we also covered a slow-mo burger drop video this week that I thought was really interesting, not only because it's beautiful to watch slow-mo footage of food falling in front of you, but also because a lot of those tools are just now becoming available to indie filmmakers. A couple weeks ago, Liz Nord had a great interview with Jen McGowan talking about breaking into commercial directing. And one of the little tidbits in there was like, consider a niche if you want to move into food and product stuff there is room there and there's an opportunity there if you brand yourself but what's crazy about that is that's traditionally been super expensive but you know this video even though they were using a lot of expensive tools like a phantom flex and a very expensive motion control arm all of the food machinations were controlled with arduino arduino if you guys don't know is a very cost-effective consumer a set of microcontrollers. So like I have an Arduino board set up to control my treadmill because I'm a weenie. It's really commonly used for like art projects to control lighting and things like that. And so the idea that you can go out and build an Arduino board to control when the food would drop, if you're doing a food video or if you're doing any kind of really close up work, you can have this control for way less expensive than it would have been even three years ago. It's super exciting for indie filmmakers. Uh, trying to find their place in the industry, trying to do cool, interesting footage. And um, I think, you know, a few Arduino boards, a Lego uh, 360 motion control rig, and, you know, maybe not a Phantom Flex, but another slow-mo camera that we might see out in the field, a Red Epic, probably a cheaper rental, but you still get some great slow-mo out of it. It's a, it's a very exciting time to be doing sort of beautiful product photography. All right, now going into some upcoming deadlines for grants and festivals. The Sundance Institute Ignite program submissions open on August 29th. So while this isn't actually a deadline, if you want to get an early start, go ahead. So if you want to be a part of the Sundance Institute's Ignite program in 2017, what you're going to have to do is submit to their What's Next Film Challenge. The challenge is to submit a short film addressing the prompt of what's next. The program is designed for 18 to 24 year olds and the five winners selected from this film competition will receive the Ignite ticket package, which is a package of various tickets and um, access to events at the Sundance Film Festival. In addition, you are accepted into the Ignite Fellows Program, which is a sort of they, they call it a competitive year-round festival and industry experience where you actually go around and travel to engage with students and emerging filmmakers as part of their Ignite On Tour. The festival program includes mentorship meetings, intimate panel discussions with filmmakers and industry executives, exclusive film talks with festival filmmakers, and access to special events. This is such an awesome opportunity for young filmmakers to get involved in the Sundance family. And like once you're part of that world, you get more and more and more opportunities from Sundance through the years, like access to grants, et cetera, including they have a brand new this year, Birth of a Nation Fellowship, specifically for young filmmakers of color. The whole touring part of it is really interesting to me and being able to sort of like engage with your peers on a level where you're also kind of forced to educate them about your own experience. I think that is 
really valuable for yourself as a filmmaker just to like give yourself some validation as for your work once you i mean once you start talking to people about how you got to that point you realize wow i am actually at this point these are the things that i should keep doing and these are the things that i could focus on that other people can take away from my experience also is kind of positioning networking as a currency in and of itself, which it is in the film world. So it's cool that mm-hmm. instead of giving money, you know, you're giving basically liquid opportunity to people. So then another grant deadline is for the Jerome Foundation's film and video grant program. Um, that deadline is on September 1st. The Jerome Foundation has a good track record of supporting filmmakers in both New York and Minnesota. It's a production grant program for individual film and video artists who work in the genres of experimental, narrative animation, and documentary production. The Phoenix Film Festival takes place in Phoenix from April 6th to April 13th, 2017. Um, That deadline for submission for that festival is August 29th. It's been named one of the 25 coolest film festivals and was mentioned as one of the top 50 festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. It's Arizona's largest film festival, which screens over 150 films. It holds great parties and provides filmmaking seminars to capacity audiences of over 25,000. And an even bigger festival, if you choose to apply to it, is the Cleveland International Film Festival, which has a deadline on August 31st. This takes place from March 29th to April 9th, 2017 in Cleveland, Ohio. It's been running for 41 years and it's held by the Cleveland Film Society. It's been recognized as one of the 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as being USA Today's runner-up for best film festival in the country. Wow. It accepts web series and new media content free of charge, which is pretty awesome considering that that's a huge new form of media for directors to break into. There really are an amazing array of cash prizes and categories that sort of span every aspect of the filmmaking community. I'm going to mention three of them right now. There's the Roxanne T. Mueller Award for Best Feature Film for $15,000, the Real Woman Direct Award, which is for women only, which has a prize of $10,000, the Central and Eastern European Competition for Post-Soviet Bloc Narrative Features, which has a $10,000 grant. I mean... Those are incredibly specific categories, and they provide a pretty decent amount of money. So I encourage you all to check out the site um, that's going to be linked to in our post to see the rest of the categories, um, because they really range from, I think, $5,000 to $7,500 cash prizes, and there's a, a ton of categories. We love festivals that offer cash prizes. Thank you, Cleveland. Moving on to our Ask No Film School segment. Matato del Castillo wrote and asked us what is the best DSLR camera to shoot his upcoming short film with, and he has about a one to two grand budget. I will just preface this by saying that we had a similar question a few weeks ago about what's the best camera around the $500 range um, for a new filmmaker, and it led to one of our most popular episodes ever and one of our most hotly debated answers, uh, which we were glad to see. Um, and so now that we've sort of stepped up a range in, uh, in this question, I'm going to pass it on to Charles and see what he has to say this time. All right. So you have a thousand or maybe $2,000 in your budget for camera. I'm going to say the same thing I said last time. I'm going to say T2I because I think what a lot of people forget is they think I just have to get the fanciest camera 
and the rest of it I'll worry about later. But honestly, if you have a really nice camera on a terrible stills camera tripod where you can't do smooth pans and tilts because it's a friction head, your footage will suffer for it. So I personally, if I only had $2,000 as a limited budget to spend, I would get a T2i and then put a little more money into nicer lenses, put a little more money into a fluid head tripod, maybe even consider something like we just covered uh, the wing slider today, and it's a very nice uh, innovative solution for moving a camera around and doing small moves, maybe a jib, something like that. I would go that direction. Now, if you're saying we have about $2,000 for the camera, we'll have a little more for lenses and tripods, or already have a nice tripod, I'd actually say you're probably at a budget where we start to leave DSLR behind. DSLR was great for really improving the image quality in this digital video budget, but honestly, at this point, we're looking mirrorless these days. Uh, between the GH4 or the Sony A7s, either the S or the R, the two, uh, I think for around this budget, you can get a lot better image quality, you can get 4K if you leave DSLR behind. If you're not clear on the distinction, so DSLR is digital single lens reflex, and the SLR came out in the 60s and used a mirror, hence the reflex part reflecting on the mirror, to give you the image to the viewfinder. But if you get rid of that mirror, you can use much simpler lens designs that get much closer to the sensor, and then you just look at the image from the sensor, and that's how you see the image. So you get a mirrorless camera like the GH4, or the A7S, the A7R, something like that, you're gonna get better low light resolution, lighter weight camera body, all sorts of features you wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, and I think you'd wanna go that direction as opposed to a DSLR. If you're willing to stretch your budget a little bit, and you're thinking you're gonna wanna use this for a couple of projects, I'd really encourage you to look at the Ursa Mini from Blackmagic. Uh, you're gonna get raw capability and some slow-mo and a really great form factor. And, and believe it or not, if you're gonna do a couple of short films, form factor starts to matter. It starts to be really nice to be able to have a camera that's convenient to use and easy to patch sound into and easy to get video out of. And things like that matter if you're gonna make a, a series of projects. So that's, it's probably not the simplest answer I've given in Ask No Film School, but hopefully it's, uh, hopefully it's helpful. Thanks, Charles. And thank you for your question. As always, you know, what we always say, it's not the tools as much as what you do with them. So we look forward to hearing what you end up buying and to seeing your film in the end. Good luck. A bunch of indie films are coming your way this week. Coming out on Amazon Prime Instant is Elvis and Nixon, um... This premiered at Tribeca earlier this year to decent reviews. It was scooped up by Amazon for distribution. It's directed by Eliza Johnson, and it stars Michael Shannon as Elvis and Kevin Spacey as Richard Nixon, which is kind of crazy. It's the untold true story behind the meeting between Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, and R Richard Nixon. And apparently it's based off of a photograph, which is one of the most requested to be seen photographs in the National Archives. A photo that graces dorm rooms across America. Wow, Michael Shannon is a beast. I feel like almost every week we're mentioning a film with him in it. Hitting Netflix this week is Rams, and a Sundance favorite from last year, and a foreign film from Iceland. And as our self-appointed resident Iceland expert, I would like to speak on it. Um, <laughs> Icelanders have a cultural identity of quirkiness, independence, and stubbornness. That's kind of how they characterize themselves historically in their narratives. And this movie demonstrates these traits in full. It's about an Icelandic farming valley in which two brothers live. They have their own flocks of sheep 
And when a disease starts to um, ravage the valley and threatens to wipe out their flocks, they have to break their 40-year moratorium on talking to each other because they're both very stubborn and had a big feud 40 years ago and work together in order to, to maintain their independence, which is, in this case, their sheep, their flock of sheep. It's, of course, very beautiful. It was shot in Iceland, and it has a really incredible ending scene in which they get stuck in uh, this crazy snowstorm. I don't know how they shot it, but it's you guys should see it. It's great. It's also very funny. And now I know what I'm going to watch. Theatrically, Natalie Portman's directorial feature, A Tale of Love and Darkness, was released in a limited capacity last week and is opening more broadly this weekend. Natalie herself stars in the film, and she wrote the screenplay based on the memoir of Israel's most famous author, Amos Oz. The film received mixed reviews when it re- premiered at Cannes last year, but I think it's interesting and worth a look because Portman herself is originally from Israel and Oz's story is one that embodies the complicated place. He's actually a left-wing writer and so pretty controversial in a lot of ways, but an extremely eloquent penman. Is that a thing? A penman? He's not a penguin. Anyway, it's clearly a passion project for Portman that she's very personally invested in, I think was working on it over the scale of like eight years. And I think that kind of personal investment can sometimes be a film's downfall, but it can also be really refreshing to see that passion imbued onto the screen. So I'm looking forward to it. And also finally coming out in theaters this week is Gus Van Sant's latest, The Sea of Trees, which was famously booed at can two years ago and it's uh, been a controversial film to say the least it stars Matthew McConaughey as a suicidal American who befriends a Japanese man played by Ken Watanabe as they are lost in a forest near Mount Fuji and the two have to team up to search for a way out does anyone still want to see this movie even though they got bad reviews I mean Khan is notorious for booing movies that sometimes we go on to like I'm just afraid because I hear that this is the end of the Meconnaissance. Oh, no. And that's like heartbreaking to me. What about the Van Sanissance? Ooh. <laughs> what was his, the last movie he made before this? Milk? No, Van Sant. No, he did Promised Land. That was after ah, Milk. Okay, okay. Um, I mean, Van Sant is notorious for continually pushing himself in new directions, mm-hmm. trying things that are sometimes different than what he's done before you get movies like the last days which are way more meditative than you know goodwill hunting was mm-hmm. um i think he's like soderbergh in that respect where he wants to keep not resting on his laurels and sometimes that misses yeah he takes risks yeah that alone makes me want to see it and finally a little Internal bigging up. Uh, The Black Star Film Festival happened earlier this month. It's Philly's indie film festival focused on work by and about people of color. And one of our newer writers, Scout Tafoya, who's also been doing some cool video essays for us, went to Philly and covered it. So we've got a bunch of awesome filmmaker interviews from the festival up on the site um, from really excellent up-and-coming talents. For example, Rafi Rivero, whose film 72 Hours, A Brooklyn Love Story, was in the festival just after its premiere at the L.A. Film Festival. And coincidentally, Rafi works just a couple floors above us here in Brooklyn. So we'll link to all those articles in the post associated with this podcast, and I encourage you to check them out. Meanwhile, you can catch everything we've talked about on nofilmschool.com. We'd love for you to subscribe to the show and rate us with five stars, of course, on iTunes. And as always, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim John Jim. Jim 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 Jim. I'm at Charles Hain. 
H-A-I-N-E. I'm at E-L Booter. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. See ya. Thank you.